Welcome, boys and ghouls, to the dimed-out Halloween spectacular. I'm actually sounding more like Adam Sandler than a sort of spooky, spangooly type host. Yeah, just the mere thought of me channeling Adam Sandler is more terrifying than anything you could probably find at an abandoned asylum. So I'm not going to do that to you guys. Well, not all the way through, you know, there may be little bits and pieces just for funsies. Because that's what this episode is, it's all about the funsies and the good time. After all, that's what Halloween's all about, isn't it? The funsies and the good times, along with the occasional ritual sacrifice. Oh, fresh blood for the master, he will be pleased. See, now I'm just sounding like Bjork. Which, I mean, Bjork on Halloween, that's a great concept. Halloween with Bjork, that's an even better concept. I wonder what Halloween is like for Bjork. What does she do? Do you think she actually embraces it? I wonder what she's dressing up as this year. That is something that I never knew I had on my bucket list until now. Spend a Halloween with Bjork. It's probably not going to happen, but we can all have dreams, right? We've got to have dreams. If you don't have a dream, how are you going to have a dream come true? And my dream just happens to be spending Halloween with Bjork. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into it. I am Malfoster, certified demon slayer, and contrary to what you may have heard, I do not desecrate graves. That is a nasty, unfounded rumour, and to be honest, I'm sick of it. I mean, you do something once, and it sticks with you for the rest of your life. So let that be a lesson to you. I am, however, your resident host, and for this particular clearly off-the-rails episode, I am your master of ceremonies. So, yeah, strap yourself in, because it's probably only going to get much worse. I am, of course, only joking. It's going to get infinitely better, because in a moment we're about to dive into the main crux of this week's episode, which, of course, of course, is centred around horror movies for Halloween. If you are looking to fill your entire Halloween week, or even just your weekend with some spooky movies or some creepy feature films, then this is the podcast for you. Because I have gone and got myself an expert in the field of horror movies. This week's special guest is Joe, one of the three co-hosts of the podcast Macabre, an all-round wonderful human being. Outside of that, he is also just really super knowledgeable when it comes to just film in general, but horror movies in particular. So when I first envisioned this podcast thing, whatever this even is at this point, when I first envisioned ideas for it and I was drafting up ideas for guests, his name was one of the first on my original list, and with good reason. A little bit of background before we jump into the conversation with Joe and before we get into his five movie recommendations. I've known Joe for, I want to say, around about, if not over 10 years at this point. I originally know him from Kevin Smith's Askew message board on the interwebs, and since then he has been a sort of peripheral person in my life on social media. You know, I've known him on different platforms, I've spoken to him on different platforms, we've commented, we've swapped um, messages back and forth, we've communicated pretty regularly on and off for the last, as I say, about 10 years. Like a lot of people from the ViewSQ message board, you know, there's uh, something about Joe that just appeals to me a great deal. As I said, he is generally a wonderful person and an absolutely fantastic conversation. Weirdly enough, though, after knowing him for 10 years 
and uh, talking back and forth and commenting and swapping this, that and the other and just kind of, as I say, keeping in touch on a semi-regular basis throughout the 10 years in a sort of peripheral fashion. This is actually the very first conversation we've had with each other. Now, on one hand, considering it's been 10 years, roughly, maybe more, probably more, it's kind of a little bit sad that it's taken us this long to actually speak to each other properly. But at the same time, the fact that this is our first conversation is pretty, as the kids would say, epic. Now, the reason that I've tapped Joe for this is because not only is he a hard-boiled cinephile, not only is he just, as I said, a wonderful person, but he is somebody that is extremely knowledgeable about horror movies. He's somebody that has a genuine, deep passion about it. We've talked on the show over the episodes about just connecting and linking up with people that have enthusiasm and passion and love for certain subjects. Joe is that personified when it comes to this genre. He knows his stuff, but he loves his stuff. And I, for that reason, that combination alone, had to have him on the show to recommend some horror movies for you guys, and for me too. And that is exactly what we got. I asked, and I received, and then some. So yeah, I put the invitation out to Joe. I asked him to come to the show with a few horror movies that perhaps were not not within the realm of the usual suspects. Let's just say that. Things that were maybe a little bit more obscure, lesser known, things that people may not have seen or heard of. And uh, yeah, he really delivered, as you're about to find out. He gave me them beforehand. I sat down and I watched them in preparation, which honestly, hands down, the most fun podcast homework I've had to do. Obviously, it goes without saying. But um, yeah, here we go. This is me talking to Joe about horror as a whole, the genre, and about his five picks, which hopefully you're going to check out and you're going to enjoy just as much as I did. So yeah, if you're ready... Lock the door, turn off the lights, and put your headphones on. I wanted to get settled in. I'm like, damn, this is yeah. good. Why am I not recording? But no, <laughs> seriously, I think it is possibly, if not the the most resonating genre in terms of like subjective viewing, because everybody has different preferences within every genre. But I think because it has so many layers to it, and we'll kind of get into this in a little bit, but because there's so many layers and different things that scare people for different reasons, whether that's just in a general sense or, as we're saying, for a personal reason, something that you've known in your childhood, something that's affected you in later life, it really does lend itself to so much flexibility and, and subjectiveness. It's, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why it's lasted for so long. Yeah, and even still, like, we both could watch the same movie, both enjoy it, but mm-hmm. have different pathways in. Yeah. And you latch on to one thing, and I latch on to something completely different. And that is part of why I love it so much. Yeah, I'm going to get into this because this is something like, I generally I generally wanted to actually dip into that. Before we get into the movie piece, which I am very excited to talk about, having seen four of the five, uh, I wanted to just jump in and I, I wanted to sort of kind of ask, I guess, what is it about horror? Well, how long have you been a fan of it, for, first and foremost? And what is it that draws you to it? 
So I am 45, soon to be 46, and I became a fan of horror the moment my father showed me Frankenstein when I was maybe four or five years old. So we're talking like late 70s, early 80s. And as a kid, uh, my dad was in the Navy, so I was a Navy brat. We moved around often. So, you know, you had to make new friends everywhere you went. And so I was a very shy, skittish child, afraid of the dark and all this other stuff. And what I realized when I was watching some horror movies with my father is I would have that adrenaline rush of fright, but I knew there was no danger, no real danger to me. So it was like going on a roller coaster. Like you get that feeling of flying through the air, but you know, you're not going to hit the ground. Right. And I became addicted to it. And it just sort of, it was the genre I gravitated to kind of in all my entertainment as a little kid i was walking around with edgar Allan poe books uh, of all his short stories reading those and then i knew of stephen king through my parents and at 10 years old grabs uh, skeleton crew off the library shelf while visiting my grandparents and talked my grandfather into checking it out for me while i stayed with them for the summer and i just was a fan ever since but it really is it's that sort of adrenaline rush and being able to face fears or face things that maybe you don't have any control over, but you have control over in the environment that you're in. Uh, right now, I went to remote work mid-March because of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And I went into, it was real weird, I have it separated, movie watching, all horror. Like mm-hmm. 99% of what I'm watching is horror movie stuff. And I went on a deep dive of infection films and like zombie films and movies with characters who are court or trapped somewhere by themselves, like the night of East of the World. It was a French zombie movie about a guy who goes to a party, locks himself in a back room for a little bit and comes out to find that everyone's turned into a zombie. And it's basically about him by himself in this building for the entire movie. And you would think I would want to shy away from that, (laughs) but for whatever reason, it would make me feel better. And then conversely, all my television watching was like rewatching The Office. Uh, My name is Earl. I started doing a new binge on, and I think it's just in uh, Schitt's Creek. And I'm like, uh, maybe the movie's just getting my demons out, and then the TV show watching is like my happy place. (laughs) There's definitely something to that. I think... For as long as I can remember, I've always found some kind of cathartic release in, in horror, and I think you were definitely seeing it this year. I mean, it's it's funny that you, you say that you jumped into like a, a binge of infection-based movies. When this kind of first mushroomed and people were, you know, staying at home and, and what have you, like, I think, was it the, the film Contagion was like Netflix's top-rated film? And you yes. think, why are people watching this? When it's actually happening outside their doors. But then you think, well, it kind of is a sort of frame of of understanding and, and a sort of weird, strange, cathartic release, like a sense of, of identifying with something that you shouldn't really be able to identify with. And I kind of feel like there's something in that with the reason horror movies have not just excelled, but lasted for so long. Yeah, because it really is kind of like holding a mirror up to society and whatever's going on. Uh, You know, the Saw pictures in Hostel back when everything was going on with the George W. Bush administration and the torture uh, reveal came out of what was happening over in the Middle East. That took off. That was like a whole new subgenre, or maybe not new, but at least it reinvented itself. Mm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I don't know if we're going to get a bunch of infection-based horror movies off of what's happening now, but I think we will get 
quite a few to where something is occurring and it's just all over the globe. There's not anything anyone can do about it. And you're just at its mercy, whether it's more infection stuff or monsters coming out of the sea and, you know, maybe a new Cloverfield movie might happen now. Who knows? <laughs> but it is going to be interesting to see what the, the people that make films after this, what they do uh, to get their demons out of what's going on now. Oh, for sure, because the one thing that film has constantly proven in all genres across the decades is that it can, when when harnessed right, be an absolute, as you say, mirror for sort of societal happenings. You know, it can be like that cathartic release, it can be that interpretation, it can be like a great uh, allegory or metaphor for, for stuff that is actually happening, and horror is definitely one of the genres, when done right, that can do that probably better than any other. Right, man, I want to get into the movies. I want to get into your picks. Let's do it. So I asked you prior to come up with a, a short list of some uh, slightly lesser known, maybe a little bit more obscure horror movies people can uh, maybe check out for this Halloween week. And uh, yeah, that's what I asked. So what have you got for us? So uh, I guess we'll start. Uh, I'm OCD, so I'll start in alphabetical order instead of release order. Okay. Uh, yeah. very... <laughs> the very first one I brought you was from 2016 called The Barn. Mm -hmm. It was uh, directed and written by Justin M. Seaman. This is one I saw a couple years ago at a horror convention or a horror film festival in Charleston called Crimson Screen Film Festival. And Justin came down to, to do a Q&A after the, the movie. So this one, the reason I picked it, it truly is an independent movie. He yeah. scraped together every piece of like money he possibly could. People pitched in. I think they did an Indiegogo campaign for it. But one of the big reasons is it is just a love letter to Halloween. It's set in 1989. Uh, two best friends, Sam and Josh, they're about to be seniors in high school. So it's kind of like their last hurrah for Halloween. And I mean, my last hurrah was several years before being a senior in high school but i remember that just feeling of like oh man i'm about to lose something that was one of my favorite things as a kid that i'll never get to do again that last halloween i went out so that's one of the reasons i wanted to do this and the gist of this story is there's an urban legend or a myth around this town that there's a certain barn if you knock three times that these demons will come out and there's like the, the pumpkin-headed uh, jack-o-lantern the miner and the scarecrow so of course in as the movie unfolds they're by a barn as a joke they knock on it and they unleash these demons which in turn are going to unleash hell so <laughs> knowing all of that and before i because i want to preface this before we find out what you thought of it it really i mean it truly is a low budget homemade sort of film but the story behind it is what i love so Justin came up with the idea for this movie and the characters when he was like five to seven years old. What? He actually has like drawn in crayon, like little comic book storyboards of everything. And it is very close to what he did as a kid. He just kind of updated it as he went. So this was a lifelong dream for him. We know each other from the Kevin Smith message board. I think mm -hmm. almost everyone on that message board at some point was like, man, I wish I could just go make a movie. Yeah. Well, this is another example of someone who just did it. Thing is, the guy he hired as his director of photography was, uh, let's just say, lied on his resume. 
and was not as good as he had said. Oh, no. <laughs> so after we watched this movie, we were like, oh, man, we really loved it. Like a raucous screening. Everyone was into it. Justin's like, he actually I think he won the, mo- uh, the award for best movie that year for that uh, film festival. He's like, you don't know what this means to me, and here's why. So he tells a story. They were f- through filming quite a bit of it, and for whatever reason, had to stop. He had not watched any of the film at that point, got it all developed, and it was all unusable. It was just garbage, every, out of focus, lighting wrong, whatever it was. Oh. He, his dream was dead, and he went into a severe depression. He wasn't calling anyone back. Like The actors were trying to get a hold of him to see how it was going, see when they needed to do pickups, and he just wasn't saying anything. And finally, someone reached out to him, and he said what happened. And then a bunch of horror websites like uh, Bloody Disgusting and Bleeding Cool and other places, uh, Dread Central, kind of put out a call to help. Be like, hey, here's what's happening. This was Justin's dream. We were all excited about this movie when we heard about it. Can anyone help? And a bunch of fans poured more money back into it so they could film more. And all of the actors were like, they had moved on to other projects. A couple of them, like the two leads, I think, actually were in shows that were running at the time. And they said, whenever we can do it, we'll come back any weekend on our dime. We don't care. We want to finish this. And they got a, a new director of photography who just crushed it. I mean, I, for the budget, yeah. I think the film looks beautiful. And they got it all together and finally put it out for everyone to see it. So that whole triumph thing, like I can't imagine finally getting your – doing your dream, being on set, filming your own horror movie and being on that high and then getting the footage back and going, I can't use any of this. I'm out of money. I don't know what to do. That's insane. Like the, the, the level of just having your soul crushed, as you say, to, to conceive something, for, like to conceive characters from five to seven – cultivate them and then just kind of throw your so much passion and enthusiasm into doing this trust in your dp and you know sourcing everybody else involved cast and crew throwing so much time and effort and your own money into it to find that everything you've shot for it is just is just trash like man you told me before that this had a really good making of the story i didn't expect it to be this good the fact that so many people <laughs> rallied around it as well to sort of resurrect it, that's amazing. And I think it's a generally good movie. I mean, yeah, I know it's not like a five-star film, but it is a damn good Halloween movie. Like, this is something you're going to get some beer, order some pizza, and have friends over and sit down and watch. Right, and I think that's exactly the frame of mind to, to go into. If you watch the trailer, which I, I'm going to put all the trailers up on, on the, the website with the show notes for this. And I urge if anyone hasn't seen it already, do check out the trailer. You'd know exactly what you're going to get. And I think the film really delivers on that sort of tone and atmosphere. You can tell that, uh, I, like, I'll be honest, this wasn't my favorite of the five, but you can tell, and I did have a lot of fun with it though. And you can tell that the, the person that has made this is like a lifelong horror fan. That Not only do they love it, but they know their stuff too. Like, they are very much steeped in it. They're steeped in a certain era and a type. But it's, it's just got a really good, fun atmosphere. The phrase I put in my notes here, it's tongue is planted so firmly in its cheek, it might just rip through. Yes. <laughs> you know, it kind of really does tap into that sort of obvious grindcore influences. Oh, grindcore? What am I on about? Grindhouse. <laughs> <laughs> we have a new genre. <laughs> 
<laughs> grindcore is like a metal type of genre, <laughs> but yeah, it definitely has like grindhouse influences. Like it, it did remind me a little bit. It's you know obviously more horror tinge, but it reminded me of stuff like Hobo with a Shotgun, Turbo Kid, yeah. um, but also a little bit reminiscent of Peter Jackson, early Peter Jackson, with some of like the OTT gore aspects of it, and just like the balance of comedy in there. I got an early Jackson sort of vibe from it too. Yeah, I could for sure see that. And it also, I don't know if you watched the show called Reaper back in the day, but it kind of had that sort of vibe. Like the Friends kind of gave me that vibe of uh, Reaper was a show about a kid who had to hunt down demons who escaped for hell, that they send them back. It, so that was kind of, by the end of this, where we end up, I'm like, yeah, that's perfect. That's so perfect. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I truly do. I really enjoy this. And I love that it's set at the, the end of the 80s. And just everything about it, even when it gets cheesy, it's just so good. Because, uh, of course, I don't want to spoil anything, but I'll just say yeah. like, the, the, the party, the town party where they're, the, the band's playing and oh, just things happen. It, it, like, just the, those little moments it made me smile so much. And I think that's what people can expect. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, as you say, like, that's the perfect way to describe it. If you're having people around, you get a pizza enjoy it and and just throw yourself into it um uh, yeah it's a lot of fun and then you know for the horror pedigree uh lanaya quigley who's a huge person in horror uh, from the 80s she's in it in a cameo playing at miss bernhardt and ari lehman who was the first jason Voorhees. he was the little kid who comes out of the water at the end of the first friday the 13th he plays dr rock <laughs> That's who that dude is. That's who that dude is. Okay, right. That makes sense. That's, that's kind of cool that there's some sort of little um, influential threads thrown in there, some sort of Easter eggs of sorts, I guess. Yeah. That's, uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad you did get it because I have told the, several people about this movie, and I would say it's about 50-50. Some come yeah. back and be like, I, I totally got it. I see why you love it. I enjoyed it as well. And then I have other people go – why did you have me watch that low-budget movie? I'm like, because it is a low-budget indie. Like, I, I could just see people, like, back in the early 70s, why did you have me watch that Night of the Living Dead movie? It was so cheesy. <laughs> yeah, it definitely, this is the thing. It's very self-aware. It definitely knows what it is. It knows what it wants to be, which always helps. Any film that kind of doesn't have a sense of its own identity is always going to fail with all audiences, I think, but... Yeah, I can I can see why people may have been a bit like, uh, why did you recommend this? But at the same time, I can totally understand people go into it, as I say, with the right mindset. You just go in uh, with that and, and you will have a fun time with it. You know, it definitely is like a love letter and like a knowing love letter as well. That's the thing. If it was just done almost like a hack job of, of like sort of uh, like a hack tribute, then you'd be able to see through that. But I think one thing that definitely shines through outside of just like the silliness and, and the enjoyable aspect of the film is that it's, it does have a sense of definite authenticity to it. Yeah, because you can always, or at least I can always tell the films where people are like, oh, hey, let's make like a cult film. Right. No, no, you don't make a cult film. You make a film and then the audience decides if it's a cult film or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've seen that so many times. People have tried to purposely make something fit into the sort of canon of cult film. And it, you can just see from like the stylistic choices and it's just so obvious and overt and it just, it doesn't land. I think you definitely need that sense of authenticity to it. Let's, 
let's move on to the next one, which is complete okay. 180 from what we just <laughs> spoke about. Uh, and that's going to be 2015's The Invitation. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing before I go. If someone does want to watch it, it is on Amazon Prime for the yeah. bar. Uh, so The Invitation from 2015 is uh, Karen Kusama's film written by Philip Hay and Matt Manfredi. It stars Logan Marshall Green, who when I first watched this, I had not watched uh, Lee Winnell's Upgrade and completely forgot that he's in that movie until I rewatched The Invitation recently. Mm-hmm. I like that guy quite a bit. I can't wait to follow his career, and I especially love him in this. Uh, this film is about uh, Logan's character is someone who's gone through some tragedy, lost a child, his marriage broke down, his wife left him, and basically disappeared down to Mexico for a while. And then all of a sudden, her and her new boyfriend are back living in the same house that uh, Logan Marshall Green's character, Will, and her had lived in. And all of a sudden, she's having a dinner party inviting Will and all of their friends back. So this guy, Will, and his new girlfriend are going to his ex's house, which used to be his house, for a dinner party. That alone, as a concept, (laughs) is terrifying. Without anything else... Like to put myself in that position, I'd be like, okay, that's where the true horror is, right yeah. there. So off the bat, like I am divorced and still friendly with my ex-wife, and I had not long after we separated a moment where I went back to the house that we both had with her new boyfriend, now husband, for a party to stand around with all of our friends, and it was the most awkward thing. So to say, uh, you know, we talked before we started recording about how you bring your own baggage into the movie. (laughs) I was definitely feeling the vibe of this movie. (laughs) So as this movie unfolds, you get like just weird feelings and, and Will keeps thinking that there's something going on there. And you find out that they are part of like this religious organization, self help place that once you give over your grief and your despair like you come out the other side a better person and john carroll lynch plays a guy named pruitt in this who's like the church liaison who just happens to show up there to like marshal over this event and it becomes clear that it's like a recruitment dinner for their friends or at least at the beginning of it so i love movies that start off and then build an atmosphere of dread and just Mm -hmm. like i always say it grabs you by the throat and it never lets go until the very end and i I really hope you feel this way about this movie because i just love it so much this movie is a master class of that for me it gives you moments to breathe and pause and reassess but man it never lets go of you and there's at least for me it's a very simple end to this movie a very simple shot but this is the sort of stuff I freak out about. Like when I saw Frankenstein as a little kid, I wasn't terrified of the monster. I was terrified of the townspeople. Mm-hmm. And this movie plays into that as me as an adult. Like this is my nightmare right here. It's like some religious <laughs> fanatic is going to come and try to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, for me, this out of the five, uh, the four that I've seen in the five, this is this is hands down my favorite. This this takes nice. just about every single box that I would look for in in a in a film period, um, but of a, of a film in this genre. I, I just I loved every aspect of it. I love, as you say, it does grab you by the throat, like it hits like a note of dread, 
really early on and it just builds and builds and builds. And as you say, it does kind of let off, but there's moments of, of pause and and you can take a breather and then reassess. And what I love about it, not only is it just the gradual building of atmosphere and just one thing I love in, in just any any film, but particularly within uh, horror films, and you are kind of seeing it make a little bit more of a resurgence. We talked briefly before we started recording about The Witch and with yeah. stuff like Get Out. I just love the, the building tension and atmosphere, but I just love that swirling around the very sort of Ira Levin-esque core of something is not right here, and I don't know what it is. Like, everything looks normal. We're in a pretty normal-looking place. These are people that you may see on the street, but they're acting slightly off-kilter. There's something here. I don't know what it is. And the longer it goes on, the more that becomes ingrained, the more you kind of just feel that dread, and you're like, what is it? What is happening? What is wrong? It's just like you can almost feel the walls moving and changing. It's just just that real consistent atmosphere and dread. I loved it. And, and as you said, without getting into any spoiler territories, you hit a final note at the end of the crescendo building and it's just like, oh, shit. <laughs> it's the most simple thing. It's like after you watch The Witch and you find a red apple, the most terrifying thing in the world, you know, <laughs> something just so innocuous at, at the end of this movie where you're just like, oh, man. Mm-hmm. But I, I do love how this movie keeps you on your toes because mm-hmm. when the first time I watched it, this was only the second time I had seen it. That's how much of an impact this movie made on me where I'm like, I know this was the first one I knew I was putting on this list <laughs> for us to talk about because it made that much of an impact on me. But the first time I watched it, I really did. I'm like, oh, I think that character's right. Oh, no, I think that character's just, he can't process his grief and he's having a hard time. Oh, no, maybe that person's right about it. So it gives you a couple different moments to reassess what you think of it as a viewer. Mm-hmm. And it just, it really does, man. It's just like a beautiful dance uh, from start to finish. And uh, as an architecture junkie, God, I want that house so bad. <laughs> that's one I need to find where that house is here so I can go get a picture of it if I'm able to. Dude, that's curious. Like, I, I want to ask you just like a whole bunch of other questions now based on, on the idea of architecture in film. Like I could just go off on a tangent about Parasite all on its own. <laughs> oh uh, God, yes. But I won't because then we don't have time for that. But um, <laughs> as much as I would love to, maybe that's for another time. Um, yeah, I, I, I love the point that you've just brought up about it. And that's such a good way of putting it. It is like just this, this strange, mercurial, beautiful dance where you do begin to side with um, the, the main protagonist and you, you kind of look at it through his, his point of view and you're like, yeah, there's definitely some weird shit happening here. But then you see it from the other perspective of like, this is this guy projecting from his, his own awkwardness and uh, in, insecurity and, and trauma and just all the things he's related and and like the pacing of it like the interweaving of past and present where you get little glimpses of things that have happened interspersed with what is happening in real time as it were it it just really tilts the psychology of it in just the slightest way but enough for you to be like uh, okay yeah maybe it's it's not the exterior maybe all of this is just internal yeah oh man and there's I, there's one moment that's like a, a character has like a I got you I got you moment and it turns out to not exactly be that that I remember it, when The Office first came out I couldn't watch it because that first season they had so many awkward moments mm-hmm. and I, I generally break out in like a sweat because I don't like those awkward really bizarre moments 
and that moment in this movie, I'm just like, I remember just going flush and just, <laughs> oh my God, that I can't, that poor guy, he, he thought he was right, but he's really not. And then not 20 minutes later, like I'm through the movie and just going, oh man. And that's the other, like going into this, I know a lot of people that talk about slow burns and I love a good slow burn. Yep. And that's what this is like, mm -hmm. it, it, but it gives you enough to keep you involved. But it's an hour and 40 minutes. You're climbing that mountain for an hour and 20, but that last 20 minutes is so far downhill. You might've just jumped off a cliff. Yeah. It's a free fall for sure. <laughs> oh my God. I'm so happy. That's my favorite of the five actually yeah. as well. So it warms my heart that that was your favorite also. Uh, dude, I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. <laughs> All right, what we got next? Uh, so, and that one is on Netflix currently for your Halloween viewing. It is. And uh, next, we're going to move to a movie called May from 2002, written and directed by Lucky McKee. And it stars Angela Bettis and Jeremy Sisto and has a cameo sort of in there of uh, Anna Ferris. So this, uh, I've already talked about it a couple times. Uh, Frankenstein was my first horror movie, so it holds a very special place in my heart. May is just a modern telling of Frankenstein to me. You have Angela Bettis, who plays May, who's a very awkward, maybe on the spectrum person who all she wants in the world is a friend. She just wants relationships, but she doesn't quite know how to go about doing it. And even when she finds someone, uh, Jeremy Sisto's character, Adam, who gives her some time and is nice to her in the very beginning, at least, like she just doesn't know how to process it and how to actually be quote unquote normal, whatever normal is around him to the point to where she weirds him out so much, he pushes her away, which kind of triggers some things. So that's the reason I have it on there because when I watched Frankenstein as a child, even as a little kid, I empathize completely with the monster and not with any of the human characters at all. Mm -hmm. This kind of flips that on the ear for me because even though May turns out to be a murderous person in this film, I have such empathy for her quote-unquote Dr. Frankenstein in this movie. And it really like grabbed me by the heart. Like I just – I hate seeing people who feel like they're alone in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I guess that plays into our modern-day times now as well. Yeah. I didn't even think about that until just now. Like, yeah. oh, yeah, she was kind of alone and just trapped in her apartment with her doll. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why I wanted to pick this one is this is one that's it was a video store five for me back when we had video stores. It was a Friday night, grabbed it off the shelf just on a whim and loved every second of it. It's another one that is a lower budget. Uh, it's not going to blow you away with like over the top scenes or is some gore, maybe less than some other things that you're used to. But it's the performances. I think Angela Bettis crushes this yes. performance yeah. so much. So you you bring up a real. It's it's really interesting that you call this a video store pick because it it fits perfectly in that pocket. I was thinking about like when this came out, and it is almost like an optimal given the nature and the tone of the film. It is almost optimal for when it came out because I was looking into this. It kind of comes in between like this really sweet spot between you had the, the sort of Asian horror boom with like uh, Ringu and in particular Audition, which were doing things that were just freaking people out that you hadn't seen 
and it was just unnerving for lack of a better word and then a few years later from like 2004 you had Saw and then Hostel and you had the whole sort of uh, torture porn boom which wasn't so much concentrating on atmosphere or freaking people out or unsettling people but just grossing people out and this is in that sweet spot like that pocket because there are there are points towards the end where especially at the end where I'm just like oh my god this is fucked up (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and normally I like. Well, I guess I can't say I never empathize with the the killer in horror movies, but typically I don't, especially if it's more kind of grounded, like this one started out. But I, re- I really did like from the moment I watched this movie and she's on screen, I was like, oh, I feel for her so much. See, I did a little bit, but there's just I I don't know what it was. I think it is the performance. You you absolutely nail it when you say Angela Bettis crushed it in this. She did like this is the most just off kilter hard to place performance i've seen in a long time yeah there's definitely a sense of empathy there because if you've ever had a period in your in your life where you've been lonely where you've kind of isolated yourself or you felt isolated from external uh, reasons uh, then yeah you definitely kind of attach that to this character to some degree but just i don't know what it is i cannot put my finger on what she does with the performance but it just kind of tilts like a seesaw. It's kind of a little to the left, a little to the right, where you're like, yeah, yeah, I kind of get it. It's like, oh, okay, maybe maybe not at all. But then, yeah, I, I, I know. And I just kind of felt myself <laughs> going back and forward. And this just, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it is uh, the, the way it's produced, the way it's put together. I don't know if it is the low-budget aspect of it, if it is the performance, or if it's just a, like that beautiful combination of everything in sync. But there's just something or maybe even do you know what it may be definitely something that contributes it and and again moving away from spoiler territories but the very first frame of the movie yeah it kind of puts you on edge and <laughs> you uh you just kind of have or at least i did you have this sort of continuous again just this this singular note of dread which just kind of builds and at the same time you're getting these interweaving sort of uh different feelings towards the character and, and what's happening but I, I was kind of um, on edge throughout most of this. And that's how I was, even like repeated viewings of it, like watching it again last week. Like I said, I, do, I don't do well with awkward. And this movie is a bunch of awkward. Yes. And I, I mean, every interaction she has, she just takes whatever she's doing. She just goes one step too far. And, and just it's so painful to watch because you do see her like start kind of blossoming a little bit and being happy and smiling and then all of a sudden she'll do something and it'll turn off the other person that she's in the scene with and they'll just kind of reject her whether it's overtly or just kind of like with body language or something and you see her read it and understand it and then she just deflates the, the good thing is that awkwardness is of uh, again to go back to authenticity and i think maybe that's why it's so effective is because you buy it it's not like she does ridiculous right. things that are over the top that are just like oh you you goof what are you doing it's just little things that are obviously just part of her natural sort of process uh, dealing with people actually speaking to her or interacting with people or like the, the start of a social life for her and, and she's navigating those new seas. So it's like little nuanced things, like you say, body language or just maybe a comment. It's nothing that's totally unbelievable. They're all like, it just feels like, yes, this is, I can totally buy that somebody that is new to, to socializing or, or new to kind of interacting with people at this level would make these mistakes because they've never dealt with it before. So you, you genuinely buy the feeling out process 
and and I think that is what what really sort of hits the performance that much deeper. Yeah, I think the the one scene that always just throws like it really breaks my heart by this when you know she's over the edge is and this doesn't spoil anything for the film, but she Adam opens up his door and she's standing outside the door. Yeah, and it doesn't look like she was about to knock. It looks like she was just standing outside the door. And when he asked her, how long have you been out here? She is, she's always truthful with him. And she's like, oh, like four hours. <laughs> and she literally was just standing on his front doorstep four hours, just waiting for him to come out because for whatever reason, she couldn't bring herself to knock on the door or ring the doorbell to try to talk to him. That it had to be like a random happenstance of him coming out. And then they would strike up this great friendship again. And that that's the part where I'm just like, oh, it's over with now. She's gone off the deep end. There's there's no resolution for her that's not going to be a horrible one. Yeah. And yet, I could twist the end of this movie to be like, yeah, it is an uplifting move into that movie, maybe? <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a question mark there, Joe, for sure. <laughs> like, if you want to pull an Obi-Wan Kenobi from a certain point of view, <laughs> you yeah. know, but... Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, this one, it, I, I hope you did enjoy this one. It, it's another one, like I said, it, it's not the level of the invitation. It is more lower budget, but there is just a, a heart and soul to this movie that has it's endured itself to me since I watched it. Yeah, I did. It's definitely a movie within its own groove. Um, and as I say, it definitely, like, it's, it's interesting to see, like, that I feel like it's definitely a film of its time. I wonder how well this would come out or be received if it was if it was made now, it, it, well, yes, I say that. But going back to what we're talking about, maybe even even more so, considering the circumstances and the fact it's dealing with sort of isolation and sort of a melancholic uh, navigation that kind of goes south, to say the least. Yeah, and I would be curious to see how they would do that nowadays because you do have social media that people stay mm-hmm. at least partially connected, or you you have some sort of a friendship with someone somewhere more than likely. So I wonder how that would play into this because this was before the whole big social media explosion and it really was like a girl trying to find a connection when there was no other way other than just running into someone. So that would be very interesting. I wonder how they would pull that off. Yeah, it, it would be. I don't, I don't know if they would be able to know you because I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, come to think of it, when you frame it that way, there is a lot more availability. But yeah, no, I did I did like it. And it's definitely, uh, as I said, it was it left an unsettling mood. Um uh, just very much impressed by uh, Angela Bettis. I'm really interested to see her do more stuff. As far as I know, I don't think I've seen her in other things, but I would definitely be willing to dig into her filmography. I know she did a TV movie adaptation of Carrie, um, which didn't do too well critically. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she's not been too much I've seen either other than this. Uh, there is There was a television show called Masters of Horror that she reteamed with Lucky, and and did that her character was a total 180 from what she was in may uh, that i would recommend checking out if you can find that it's called i think sick girl i believe let me go back real quick and look but yeah um yeah sick girl was in 2006 that master of horror episode and that's what really sold me on her was like i, I was like well maybe she's just awkward like that in person or that's like her go-to acting style mm-hmm. and then when i saw her in that episode i'm like oh no she's just damn good she is because you can even see you can see the switch when when you say uh, after the standing on the porch incident and and she does sort of fracture beyond repair uh you do see like a lot more confidence 
and, and it's like it is a complete 180 but at the same time there's still that intensity but it's just more forthright yeah i was genuinely really really impressed with her in this um and and yeah very unsettled throughout most of it <laughs> see if my luck holds with the next one because uh, we're coming up to the transfiguration from 2016 this one was written and directed by michael o'shea and if the invitation is my favorite film out of the group that i brought you this is very clearly a second for me so i, I hope that it ticked the box for you as well but i am a disciple of george romero i love the man he was a god to me and this movie feels very much like his vampire movie martin Mm -hmm. And this is about a teen named Milo who lives in the projects. His parents are dead and gone. It's just him and his older brother. And really the only structure he has from his older brother is he has a place to live. And every so often his brother's like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> like the, <laughs> the kid is just twisting in the wind. And again, I love social commentary in movies. So I love how this story unfolds the where. We don't really know if Milo is a vampire. He acts like he is. He very clearly does things that vampires do. So I, I love the journey we take there and his relationship with Chloe Levine's Sophie, who also moves into the building that Milo lives in. And she, I can't remember if you get her full backstory, but basically something happened where her parents aren't in the picture and she's living with her very abusive grandfather. Mm -hmm. So to me, this is all about just kind of lost souls finding each other in the darkness and holding on to each other for some small glimmer of light. Uh, bad analogy for vampire movie, I'm sure. But the fact that it's not, you know, like a vampire hunter that brings this movie to a head. It's the, the, this kid's reality of where he lives, what's going on, socioeconomic policies, everything else. Just, man, this is squarely in my wheelhouse. And this is another one that is low budget, very, very much a slow burn. But when things happen, man, it hits hard. And I don't know what their blood budget was, but they use quite a bit on it for certain scenes of this. But at the same time, it is just a very slow, beautiful love story in a way that isn't a love story. Mm -hmm. Like, There's never once where I don't believe their relationship between Milo and um, Sophia or Sophie, like, it's so believable to me that they're both just kind of twisting in the wind. And when they see an anchor, there's like, yeah, I'm going to grab you and hold on for dear life. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, you, you phrase it really well about it being a love story, but not a love story. There's definitely a sense of, of, of romanticism, but not like direct romanticism. It's almost just like finding a kindred spirit of sorts or, or finding, as you say, an anchor. Yeah, you know, like somebody that I feel I can trust, somebody that I feel gets me. On, on a level that I've not found with, with anybody, even relatives. Yeah, and then I love there's a scene where he's showing her his vampire movies. It's kind of like all he does is go out and hunt, come home and check out vampire movies. I'm like, <laughs> other than the hunting part, that's what I did as a kid too. I still do that today. <laughs> but I love that he's showing her certain things and she clearly gets freaked out. Yeah. But instead of running away from him completely like what we had in May, she just kind of takes a step back, reassesses, and then it's like, yeah, I mean, I can dig it. It's cool. Whatever. 
Yeah, it's 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 funny. I, I kind of latched onto that too. Like, especially when he takes her to see Nosferatu and he's like, oh, what did you think? And he's hoping that she's going to be like, oh, it's amazing. She's just like, eh, it's okay. It's <laughs> like not the response. Like she's totally nonplussed by it. And it's just like, I, I just love the fact that it's, it, it is again, going back to authenticity, you can have this this mutual connection with somebody who does not care about the things you love. And that's fine. And that's great sometimes because you're supposed to sort of have those overlapping interests. But at the same time, you're supposed to also have your own things. So like I resonated, like the amount of times I've been fused about a movie and said, oh, you've got to watch it. And I've had people sit down and watch it and they've been like, yeah, I don't like this. I'm just like, oh, it, mm, it, yeah, it's okay. I still like you. It's all right. We can still be friends. And I love the fact, I think in that same scene, she brings up the Twilight series. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, it's, and what I love, though, is instead of just like, oh, my God, to the sparkly vampires, like he doesn't do that route. He's just like, yeah, I don't find that one as realistic. He has like a very clear cut reason for not liking it. It's not just like, oh, that's just trash. Why would you bring that up to me? So you, he's still engaged with her uh, during that, even though she had just like trashed Nosferatu, which is one of the greatest vampire movies of all time. <laughs> Their relationship is what carries me through this movie because it, it is slow. And it really, to me, is a direct descendant from George Murrow's Martin. So if you've ever seen Martin, think that sort of tone and that sort of pace, but just set in present day. Uh, with two little kids that live in the projects who are trying to escape their fate and just might not be able to. Yeah, it's uh, like the way it's presented, like, first of all, I'll say this, this is for me definitely number two on the list. I like this a lot. I like it a lot for a lot of reasons. Um, One of them definitely being that core relationship. And just Milo as a character, I just found really interesting because he is in many ways an enigma and you bring up a good point. You don't know if he actually is a vampire or if he's just become so embedded in his love for sort of vampire lore that he's, he's, he's crossed a threshold in his own being. I, I found that really interesting, um, as well as just, like, him as a character as a whole. But, yeah, it's, it's, I just I love the, the way that it, it definitely does owe a debt uh, to Martin. It owes a debt, in my opinion, and it name-checks it as well. Although he does name-check Martin in the movie, too. Um, it definitely owes a debt to let the right one in a little bit. Oh, yes. But the way that it's framed with the optics of like an indie New York film, like the kind that you kind of saw sort of definitely hit as a, as a boom in the, in the sort of 2010s. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I think it's got a lot to it. And it's definitely a slow burn, but it's definitely worth the investment. I love that you bring up it being in New York City because I absolutely adore movies set in New York City. It's one of my favorite places to visit. I have not been in a long time. And I especially love it when it's not in manhattan Mm -hmm. like this is kind of out on the outskirts like coney island area is definitely not in the center of the island so even though it was not in the most pretty of places in new york city it really like grabbed me when i watched it again like man you've not been i think it's been like six years (laughs) since i've been to new york city like i miss it i miss it i feel it definitely serves it though well by by kind of being in in a more sort of ingrained everyday part of new york and not showing like because it would be a totally different and and i'll be honest like I would lose a lot of my interest if it was like taking place in Times Square or like major right. recognizable places. But if you've got like locations that feel like they're boots on the ground, real places where people like Milo would walk through and exist and just be in like a day-to-day setting, then then yeah, it just again it just sort of anchors it and adds a bit more sort of realism and, and gravitas to it. Because even when he travels outside of his specific area where he lives to go hunt, he still goes to 
other out of the way mm-hmm. places that aren't like you know main New York City. So I, I really enjoy that also. And then, it, man, there, there's a couple scenes in this that really hit home that I'm not going to talk about because I don't want to spoil it for anyone that watches. Uh, but there, there was one coming back to the social commentary side of things. The white couple that show up outside mm. of his building because they just know that if they stop and ask the right person, someone's going to sell them drugs. Yeah. My good Lord. I mean, that is like nail on the head of like today's society so bad. Cause you know, if they bought weed off of someone and the cops pulled them over, like those two are getting a slap on the wrist and whoever sold them the drugs are going away for life. Now, if they're lucky. So that resonated even more with me now with everything that's been going on here recently in the States. One thing I want to flag um, of, of a note of interest, and it kind of t- attaches onto something you mentioned before, uh, Milo has got quite the extensive collection of vampire films, and I did try and scan them very quickly, uh, and I did pull out something I haven't seen for a long time, but it has made me want to go back and watch it, and that is first. I didn't know that was released on VHS, unless you've been pirating that, Milo, which I'm, you know... <laughs> to each their own um but yeah i was i was kind of impressed that that was in there it's kind of a, a little lesser lesser known film and i'm ashamed to admit that that's one that i know of and have yet to watch well it's been over a decade since i've seen it joe so i i couldn't i couldn't tell you if it holds up if it's good uh, i like i said i want to go back and watch it because it's been so long and it's the first reminder i've had of that film for a long time so seeing it on my low shelf i was like yeah i should probably go check that out again but I just liked it. I liked the fact that it wasn't just really overtly obvious stuff. Like he's got some some interesting deep cuts on his shelf. Yeah, I was happy when he was talking about him. You had mentioned already. He brings up "Let the Right One In." That one. That's my personal favorite vampire movie of all time. Uh, and if you've not read the novel, it's fantastic as well. So the fact that he was checking that and not like, even though I love it, not like, oh yeah, the Lost Boys. I like that movie a lot. Yeah. You know, like th- this kid knows his cinema. Like he, he might be eating people in the public <laughs> bathrooms, but. <laughs> <laughs> he got his vampire cinema down. He knows his stuff. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, like that's a kid I would sit and have a conversation with. If I, like if I ran into him at a screening of Nosferatu, I'd be like, "Hey, like you want to go get some pie and like have a couple of coffee and sit down and talk." Yeah, he's like, "Hey, kid, don't sink your teeth into my, my neck. Let's just let's browse over your letterbox list and see what you've been watching lately." <laughs> All right, let's go into your fifth one. I haven't seen this. I've tried, I have tried, and I have tried to find this. But you did warn me that this was this was a rare treasure. This was a difficult uh, film to get a hold of, and you were not kidding. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but what is it, uh, the fifth film on your list? So this film is called The Ugly. It's a 1997 film out of New Zealand. It was written and directed by Scott Reynolds. And this came to me, actually, from uh, something completely different way back in the early 2000s. I think I was in a random Best Buy, and something called Boogeyman the Killer Compilation had come out. And it was kind of like Terror in the Isles. It was just a, a clip documentary, basically, of a bunch of different horror movies. So on a whim, I bought it, and one of the films that the featured was The Ugly. And it is about a guy who was a serial killer he was caught he confessed but he said the reason he was killing is the voices told him to do it and as he tells his story more he's saying well i was haunted 
and compelled to kill. The more people I kill, the more haunted I am because my victims surround me constantly telling me to kill certain other people. And as the story is called The Ugly because the kid had a very, let's just say Norman Bates type childhood, super overbearing mother who I think she's manic depressive, bipolar disorder, like the whole lot. When you see the movie unfold, the way she treats that kid, like one minute she loves him, the next minute he accidentally knocks over a drink and she's beating the tar out of this kid. So as he grows up, he's got just a very warped sense of reality and he's picked on all throughout school. They call him Simple Simon. His name's... um, I don't know if they have, yeah, Simon Cartwright. And they call him Simple Simon because he's just very quiet. He can't read because his mother's trying to keep him kind of under her thumb. And she doesn't want him to know that his father left because she's crazy, for lack of a better term. And he keeps writing letters saying that he wants custody of Simon. So if Simon knew how to read, he would be able to know that his dad doesn't hate him. He actually loves him. But the mom wants that narrative of, well, he doesn't like you. That's why he left. It's all because of you. Mm -hmm. So as he grows up, he has a very hard time with women, but women's not his only, like, target. Like, if you were just writing a generic screenplay, of course he would attack every woman he sees because he's, quote, unquote, killing his mother. They make it very clear in this movie he only got caught by circumstances beyond his control. It wasn't like they profiled him and said, oh, well, here's where he's going to strike next, and this is the type of person. He was killing men, women, all across the board because it just happened whenever the voices told him to do it. So this movie starts five years after all of that happens, and he is asked for a psychiatrist to come in and reevaluate him, give him a clean bill of health, so to speak, so he can get out of jail. And She's someone who is kind of infamous herself because she got off someone who actually did kill people, but kind of on a technicality. So she's a pariah herself, like her office, her home vandalized and people would stand outside protesting her. So I guess he found out about her some way or other. So as the story unfolds, it's basically her interviewing him and then we get flashbacks. One of the reasons I love this movie is the way that it's filmed. It is very gritty, very grainy. And when the voices start talking to him or when he goes to kill, they do a shaky cam, but not in the way that you would normally think. Instead of like kind of up and down and side to side, it's more like in and out. It's almost as if there's an earthquake happening around him. And for whatever reason, that always stuck with me. But uh, this is a movie that I absolutely love because as that story keeps going, you do get a very clear answer of what is going on, who's playing who, was he really haunted, was he not, is he cured, is he not cured. But I hate that you can't find this anywhere. (laughs) And, And I have searched high and low. I actually just located a copy in uh, South Korea that's all region that I was able to get my hands on, which hopefully my co-host for the podcast, Macabre, don't listen to because I bought them each a copy so I can send it to them for Christmas because I want to talk about this movie in depth on our show. Mm -hmm. And I've never been able to do it because you just can't find this anywhere. And even trying to find it pirated, you can't find it somewhere. I found found a version of it on YouTube that is dubbed in German. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's there. But it's it's all all dubbed in German without any subs either. Um, I don't know. I didn't get around to seeing if you could you could flick uh, the YouTube sub settings if they've registered them at all, if they've done a transcript or not. But it is there, 
So if you speak fluent German, or German is your natural native language, you'll be able to find it on YouTube. Um, <laughs> but other than that, I, I looked high and low for this. Uh, I found, I think, a single copy on VHS, which uh, would be fine, and I feel would be a great way, a great format to watch this film in based on how you've described it as kind of like that grainy look. And I, having watched the trailer, I think, yes, this would definitely be a great sort of throwback format to watch this film on but i don't have a vcr so that one's out the window as well so yeah it's 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 really really difficult to find (laughs) yeah and just on a whim i started looking again so on amazon i did find some copies but they are all not playable in north america at all Ah. they they aren't our region, whichever one it is, I can never remember. They're not region free. Uh, and the Blu-ray is like $35 and the DVD is 30 <laughs> That tells you how rare this is. But that is the reason I wanted to put it on there because from the moment I saw that clip on that Boogeyman compilation, I was sold. I was like, I have to see this movie. I want to see this movie. I just happened to get a copy of it. I think I did order it off of Amazon all those years ago because I looked for it right away and got a copy of it. And then the more I talked about this movie, the more I realized no one knew what in the heck I was talking about. Yeah. Like, the ugly, I don't understand. What do you mean? What do you mean? So it, I did want to at least touch on it and put it out there if anyone can happen to track it down. It is one high on my list to recommend because it is part slasher, part ghost story. And it is another one that very low budget, man, they pour every bit of the money they have into it. And the guy that plays Simon reminds me of like a New Zealand Gavin Rosdale, <laughs> like his hair and everything is like that era, you know, but it is, wow. it, if you are able to actually get your hands on it, it is one I highly recommend to check out. Yeah. It looks like it's definitely entered um, a high place on my watch list uh, for sure. Cause I did, I did check out the trailer and I tried to find some random clips and, and scenes from what I could find. Even those are pretty difficult to come across uh, like variations of, of the same couple but yeah, it looks it looks like it's got a real intensity to it, and I'm kind of interested in the sort of dynamic going on between the the two leads from what I've seen. Yeah, yeah, it, it's because it really is a cat or mouse game of her trying to break him down to get the real story out of him, but him trying to manipulate her, and, and you can't really tell, and you don't until the end of the movie, and you finally get an answer. You don't know if he is cured, and he's just trying to truly clear his name so he can get out because he served his time, or if he's not cured, but he wants to kill, so he's just trying to tell her to do it. And there's plenty of moments in this to where events happen, and then you pull back, and you're like, oh, that was just in that person's mind. But they don't do it cheaply, and they do it for a reason, and it builds to some cool stuff that happens. But the reason it's called The Ugly is there's a part in the flashback where he's a little kid and three bullies knock him down and he hits the pavement like on the sidewalk and just half of his face gets completely scratched up where he has to wear a a patch over it. And as he gets older and angrier and and more haunted, let's say, uh, he always, when he looks at himself in the mirror, he always sees that scar, even though in real life he's not scarred. So as part of that bullying, when they knock him down and mess his face up, they go through his backpack and his reading level. And at this point, I think he has to be like early middle school or late elementary school. His reading level is the ugly duckling. So that's the book he has in there. So the kids are just making fun of him like, oh, you really are simple, aren't you? Uh, So as someone to tie this back personally, as we were talking before, I was bullied like a mother when I was a kid in school. 
my first grade year, there was a kid who had failed or been held back two years in a row who was so much taller and bigger than the rest of us. And he made our lives absolute hell until we complained, actually had to have the cops called and have to sit down with the principal. And then when they looked into the kid, they found out that he was getting beaten at home and they actually like social services got involved in everything. Yeah. Like it was a whole weird thing. Uh, so I, I very much put myself in that, this kid's space of, I've been picked on like that. That's not fun. But of course, you know, <laughs> We all don't turn into serial killers. Right, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we all deal with it in healthy ways and go to counseling and figure it out. But <laughs> everyone's process is different, Joe. Don't don't hey, ju- don't judge. <laughs> you know, and who knows if I had a straight razor like he uses in this movie, maybe I'd have worked it out a different way. <laughs> I just want to say first and foremost, man, thank you for these picks. These are great. I've enjoyed the, the four that I've seen. Um, I wish I wish I could have got around to seeing the ugly, but as discussed, it is extremely difficult to find. So yeah, listeners, if you do find it, do let me know how, because it is it is high on my watch list. But of the four that I've seen, thoroughly enjoyed, and I think people will really uh, enjoy and and appreciate the fact that there's a little bit of something for everybody here. You know, it's it, not all four films kind of clump into the same. Uh, sort of subgenre and what have you. There's a little bit different, something a little bit different for each one, which I think is is a good representation of of what the genre can do. And I'm glad that came through because that was part of my goal as well. It was the pick ones I thought would be good to talk about and represented the horror genre as a whole very well. Yeah, you've definitely done that, sir. You've definitely done that for sure. Um, you mentioned briefly the podcast Macabre. Um, I want to give you just a, a little bit of time on the floor to do some shameless promotion for that show and anything else people can find you on. Well, yes, uh, lovely, and thank you so much for having me on. This has been great. Like We've known each other for so long. It's yeah. the first time we've got to speak together. So it, uh, let's do this again. Like Definitely, man. Anytime sure. you want to have me on, let me know. And if you do get to see The Ugly, maybe we'll bring you on the podcast Macabre and talk about yeah. that. Uh, so I am a co-host on the podcast Macabre, which is a show about all things horror. We talk about many different things. We might do a franchise focus, like on the Blade series or something like that, or do a deep dive on directors, like when George Romero passed the way we talked about all his films even the ones that weren't necessarily horror and we just have a good time it's myself chris and jenny we all know each other from the view askew board we all got together because we were on the horror thread on the message board together and realized that we liked what each other had to say even though we might not agree all the time so at some point we just started doing a show and it was just kind of like if anyone ever listens to us bonus points but we just have a good time talking to each other once a week about stuff that we've seen or a topic that we preset that we want to discuss. So uh, if you want to find out where you can find us, uh, go to podcastmacabre.com. You can find all our social media stuff there, all our backlog of episodes. And I also have a second show called It's On My List. And you can find that at itsonmylistpod.com and find all our social medias there. That show actually is one that started out of talking with a bunch of friends that I met once I moved here to Los Angeles to where we realized Everyone has those movies (laughs) that are blind spots in your list. So as we were talking over the course of two hours for (laughs) what we were doing, like countless times, someone's like, oh, you haven't seen this? No, it's on my list. Or you haven't seen this? No, it's on my list. So we all got together. And once a month for that one, we come out and we talk about a new movie. We actually just did our October episode uh, yesterday or the day before. 
that'll come out here soon uh, that is on Romero's Night of the Living Dead because two of us had not seen Night of the Living Dead and I was like nope that's our that's our horror October Halloween episode let's jump on that but yeah. I mean we do everything like no genres off limits our very first episode was gone with the wind because most of us had not seen it yeah i listened uh, to that and and that was it just kind of reinforced my uh my intention to never watch that movie yeah shouldn't have to should not have to conversely uh casablanca fantastic movie that i can't believe it took me this long to watch so you you just you just recently watched casablanca yes for the first time Dude. like like I knew of it, um, you know, it knew the story, knew everything, but it's kind of funny, like Gone with the Wind, I always thought was this massive love story between mm-hmm. two people like during the Civil War and dealing with it. And my thought process was, oh, they're in love. The Civil War breaks out. They're pulled apart because of the war. Horrible things happen to both of them separately, but they claw and fight back and love finds a way and they reunite at the end. No, not any, they're <laughs> Everyone in that movie almost is a horrible person. Yeah. And it's not a love story, and I don't understand why people think it is. Well, I had the same thought of Casablanca. I'm like, oh, this is a so beautiful love story. And they get the, and, and sort of, kind of, there's a love story there. But, like, at the end, they don't wind up together, which would happen 99% of the time when people write screenplays in Hollywood now. Mm-hmm. And, my Lord, I that movie, one, the version I watched looked fantastic fantastic whatever the transfer was i don't know if it was like a 4k restoration or what but like it felt like i was sitting in that club with them it it just it was fantastic but but yeah i just watched it for the first time uh it was last year early this year i can't remember uh, exactly when but it it blew me away it was fantastic and i think one or one of us did not care for that movie and i'm just like cheryl why wow why (laughs) Oh man, I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. It's funny because I just recently rewatched it and I kind of had my own sort of Milo, Sophie, Nosferatu moment because I love that movie. I've loved it for a long, long time. My wife hadn't seen it before, so we sat down and watched it. And I was like, it's amazing, right? It's amazing. It's just like, eh, it's okay. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> it's a good job. I like so many other things about you because right now this is difficult. <laughs> Uh, anyway, guys, there you go. That's where you can find more of Joe if you want to go do that, which I'm presumably you do because it's been a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you very much, man, for the recommendations, for taking the time to come and, and, and finally talk to me. And, thank uh, you so much. This is a blast. Absolutely. And we are definitely going to be doing this again at some point. So there you go, that was my conversation with Joe and Joe's five horror movie recommendations, each one very different. And as we touched upon, there is a little something for everybody in that selection of five as well, which is brilliant. It really gives a good example of what the genre can produce. Joe did mention in our conversation a couple of places where you can find them. I think he mentioned that The Barn is available on Amazon Prime and The Invitation is on Netflix. Uh, As for the others, in fact, for all of them, I will put in the show notes for the website where you can find each of the five movies, well, with the exception of The Ugly. 
yeah if you can tell me where you can find that please do tell me but for the other four i will give you links to where you can find them in the show notes on the website which is dimed-out.com but yeah if you do check out any of the movies that we've talked about in this episode perhaps one of them is one of your all-time favorites and you are just so pleased someone else has flagged it up or perhaps you've seen some of them and you weren't so keen Either way, I want to know. I want to know your thoughts and your feelings on the movies we've talked about in this episode. Likewise, if you've got recommendations yourself, if you've got a horror movie you want to suggest, either based on the back of the ones talked about here or just in general, then please do let me know. Let me know in the comments on the website or you can get in touch with me. As I've said in the past, the most direct way to do that is via Twitter or Instagram and you can find me at I am Mal Foster. And whilst you're on the social medias, do go and find the podcast Macabre and it's on my list. Definitely two shows that you want to check out. If you are a cinephile, if you love film, definitely uh, two shows that you need to be listening to for sure. You know, alongside this one, obviously. Speaking of this show, if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed what we've done in season one, and yeah, we are almost at the end of season one, but if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far and you're looking forward to season two, then the best thing you can do to show that support, to show a little bit of love, and make sure that you don't miss out on what is remaining in season one and what comes in season two is to simply subscribe. Find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It really is that easy. Helps us out and it helps you out. Everyone's a winner, baby. That's the truth. Is that the lyrics? I don't know. I'm quoting a hot chocolate song on a Halloween episode. We may have just reached peak randomness. Or have we? It is a Halloween episode, and it wouldn't be a Halloween episode if we didn't indulge in a little bit of trick or treat. So I have here a very uh, real and totally not made-up, fictional, imaginary, spinny wheel of decision-making to decide whether you, dear listener, get a trick or a treat at the end of this episode. Oh, I know you weren't expecting that, right? Talk about a holiday curveball. Yeah. Yeah, I got you by the pumpkins now, haven't I? Right, so here we go. We're going to spin the Halloween wheel of trick or treat, and your fate will be decided in just a few clicks. So there it goes. The wheel of fate. Watch it spin. Is it going to be trick or is it going to be... Treat. Yes, you're in for a Halloween treat. So, seeing as you've been so supportive throughout this first season, and because it is a time of giving, or is that Christmas? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I feel like I'm in a giving mood because it is the holidays, because I had such a wonderful time with Joe and a conversation that I couldn't fit all of into this episode. We talked for quite a bit before we recorded and we talked about several other things. I wanted to fit it all in, but I just couldn't. So I'm taking a chunk from that conversation and I'm putting it into a bonus podcast a bonus halloween podcast which is going to be dropping on the same day as this so it will be in the feed right now yeah it's a conversation that sort of centers around uh, i guess you could call it a hobby that joe has picked up i like to see it as a quest because i'm genuinely fascinated by this i don't know how interested you're going to be but if you like movies if you like film then then definitely you will want to check it out but we talk for about 10 minutes about how joe has been driving out to different locations to places that have been sort of iconic and legendary in film different houses different buildings that you know and recognize and love from movies and tv throughout history in particular horror movies 
uh, stuff from Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Poltergeist. He even went to the spot in Seven, the very end of Seven, the whole what's in the box bit. Yeah, we talk about that and some other stuff as well. And on top of that, that additional like 10 minutes, there may be a couple of other little goodies in there as well for you because it's Halloween. So yeah, it's there if you want to listen to it. If you don't, that's totally fine. Just never tell me that you didn't listen to it because otherwise my heart will be really broken. I sound a little bit like me, Jagger. Yeah, I'm I'm not even going to touch that. We've already had Bjork for Halloween. We don't need Mick in the mix as well. Anyway, that is about it for this week's episode and this, our very first Halloween special. It feels kind of special. It really does. Um, partly because you guys are on board. Yeah, yeah, I just said that. Anyway, as always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other, and until next time, keep it dimed out. Alright, that's enough of that.